Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. Let Safeway help you unleash your globe with your favorite personal care products. Right now at Safeway, get great deals on all your favorite personal care products, like Head & Shoulders Base Shampoo, Crest 3D Whitening Toothpaste, Listerine Antiseptic Mouthwash, Sensodyne Sensitivity Fresh Toothpaste, Degree Women Antiperspirant Deodorant, or Soft Soap Liquid Hand Soap. Visit Safeway.com or head into your local Safeway store for more deals and specific details. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. Which Kelly are you? Edward. People call me Ned. I photograph what my conscience asks me to. Ned, they want to have him in the movie! Mad Max 2. It's my kind of movie. Shut up! Shut up! Your friend can't come back, Sarge. Oh, he's the same one as Kara. You're blind. He's an equal opportunity employer. The kids who are sick cannot do the hip-hop anymore. Welcome to another episode of The Curb. My name is Andrew Pearce and this is a podcast that takes a look at Australian film, culture and a whole bunch more. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wajak people of Noongar Nation and I pay respects to the elders both past, present and emerging. In this particular episode, well, it's a part one. If you clicked on the link and you saw the, the title and all that kind of stuff, you saw that it's part one. And there's going to be a part two, which is going to be dropping in a couple of days. But today you're going to hear first part of my interview with the director Kia Roche-Turner whose film Wormwood Apocalypse is, well, it's recently had a screening at Brisbane Film Festival launched there. It's going to be screening at the Sydney Film Festival on Saturday, the 6th of November. Tickets are selling quick. Monday, the 8th of November, it's sold out. Tough luck if you wanted to go on Monday night. No joy there. However, if you're in Melbourne, uh, you can still catch this particular film. It's going to be the closing night film at the upcoming Monster Fest, which is celebrating its 10th anniversary. It's going to be excellent there. That's going to be on Sunday, the 12th of December at 8 p.m. Cinema Nova, Melbourne. And I believe that tickets are really flying out the door. Having watched this film, and thoroughly enjoyed it. If you are a horror fan, if you love the first film, you are in for a treat with this one. And I think that, you know, genre fans and zombie fans and all that kind of stuff are really going to enjoy this. And most importantly, I think that fans of... The films that, well, you'll hear in the discussion that Kia and I have here, the films that really inspired Kia quite a bit, you're going to enjoy this too. So if you're a Mad Max fan, uh, if you're an Evil Dead fan, you're going to enjoy this particular one. And the key thing is too, is that I don't think you need to have seen the first Wormwood film to appreciate or understand the lore or the legacy of what's actually going on here with Wormwood Apocalypse. It had been a little bit of time before I actually saw Apocalypse uh, since I had seen the first one. And I revisited the, the first one after watching Apocalypse and, you know, my memory of it was still fresh. So I think it's a lot of fun. Highly recommend it. Anyway, enough of beating around the bush for me, guys. I'm not going to be able to play a trailer because the trailer that is available is just a whole bunch of noises and it's visually exciting. I'm going to stick it in the show notes because I highly recommend checking it out. There is a bit of a nice tease of one of the villains in the trailer itself. Uh, so here you go, some nice music, and then we'll jump into the interview with Kia. Make sure, again, folks, uh, stick around. Part two will be dropping in a couple of days' time. Thanks.
Now tell me, Andrew, did you did you take wormwood out and put it up on your shelf there? Of course I did. <laughs> of course I did. <laughs> the little touches. I love that. Wormwood right next to a fluffy penguin. Perfect. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. The the first dog on the moon stuffed toys there. Oh, nice. Very nice. Got next to road games and uh, above the Nightingale. And road games. Yeah, wow. Now, so is that the Jamie Lee Curtis road games? or the? Yes. The, yeah. yeah, right. Wow. Yeah, like an 80s Ausploitation throwback there. That's one of Quentin Tarantino's favourite Australian films, apparently. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So that's the Umbrella Disc, which has got, um, I believe it's got the interview that he's done with somebody on it from not quite Hollywood. So great dog. Yeah. Great dog. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I have that many copies of it. I think I'm on my fourth or fifth copy. Every time that Umbrella puts a new copy out I'm I have to pick it up. You have to. It's it's got the same special features. It's the same film, but you have to uh you have to put it out there. <laughs> I um embarrassingly that documentary taught me more about Australians uh, like than almost any doco I've watched. Um I just oh, yeah. didn't know a lot about the 70s exploitation era until I watched that. Like, all that stuff. Like, who is that famous stuntman? Is it Grant Page? Um, yeah, Grant Page. And Stunt Rock is coming out on Blu-ray soon, too, as well. Uh, which, yeah. You know, it's going to be great to see, revisit that. Yeah. I, I just, I, watching even just the clips from those films was so exciting. I was just like, oh, man, we were doing it. Like, we were making... Grant Page is like a crazy, bustling Jackie Chan. Like, what an interesting oh, yeah. character. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's insane. I, I interviewed um, Brian Trenchard-Smith oh, yeah. a couple of years yep. ago. And he's, he's a great got person a, to... He's got a real internet presence and he's everywhere. What a lovely oh, guy. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. had... It was funny. I was, I was on the... I had a chat with him for about an hour and... I could see at the end of the hour, he was supposed to go out for lunch and his, his partner was behind him going, excuse me, Brian, we've got to go. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I, I had no idea. And he just gets lost in his own thoughts. But the story is about um, filming Man from Hong Kong and uh, and what he used to do with that was just quite quite nuts. There was just no, almost no safety in some regards. <laughs> you know, it was yeah. just a, a bit bonkers. Yeah. yeah, like a scary time. Um and like it was sort of, it seemed like it was almost socially acceptable to be a dangerous hero back in the seventies, like just in general. Whereas now it's just like safety and like correct and appropriate behaviour and words on set are paramount. It's hard to make badass films now, Andrew, because <laughs> it's such a different time. You know, we're all policing all of our activities um, so carefully. Um, and it's, it's such a good thing that we are. Um, I think, you know, um, you know, safety is super important. Um, you know, everybody's got to be nice to each other. It's so, it's so great, but it's hard to be, you know, horrible, you know, pushy directors, which is great, but it's less fun. <laughs> it's less fun. It looked more fun in the seventies, didn't it? You just, you know, you play seven rounds of cricket, drink 14 beers, and then you do the first take of the <laughs> take of the day, you know? Those days are over. Yeah, drive drive your car through a a caravan or something like that. It's just, yeah, the things that were done then just couldn't be done now. Have you seen that photo of, like, it's from the original Mad Max, um, and it's like a bike just going at 200 miles an hour, and the the, the DOP is just sitting behind the guy filming across the top of the helmeted head 
Um, oh, I'm right. not even sure the DOP has a helmet on. <laughs> like they're just yeah, probably not. I don't. Yeah. Know, it doesn't even look like he's strapped in, and it's just like, bah! like I mean, it's <laughs> insane. Like, um, oh, those are the days. Just reckless, you know, superheroes of Australian cinema. You know? Yeah, and the war stories you hear from that. I mean, the amount of people that were injured and going off to hospital and coming back the next day and things like that. It's just when I was about nine. Um, my mum used to date a guy who was sort of close to some film, film industry types. I remember being at a party when I was about nine and meeting this giant bikey of a man with a giant beard and he had a hundred stitches in his head. He looked like Finstein um, and that was from the original Mad Max and he was telling stories about, you know, falling off the bike and smashing his skull open and then, you know, going back to film the next week um, and, you know, that was my first foray into the idea that these movies happen in reality that they're not just made in Valhalla and then cast down to us people make these things you know I remember yeah. being very very affected by that conversation with that troll-like human being but it was yeah it felt very um you know I felt very near to, to that movie at that, at that point I love I love the original Mad Max it's a wonderful film did that linger in your mind growing up like whatever happened to that man I want to do it <laughs> Yeah, it, it lingers in my mind even now. Like, you know, I mean, the, the, the Mad Max such a mythological film for all of us. Um, to be able to talk to some, even at that age, nine, I'd seen it like two or three times, you know, and this is like an R-rated action film, you know, like things were different when I was a kid, you know. Um, and, um, yeah, I, like it was like meeting somebody from like, uh, like a Celtic myth, you know, it was like me Grendel, you know, you're just like, Oh my God, you were there. Like you were there when, <laughs> when they made that, like human beings made that. Like I thought it was mythology or something, you know? And then you realize, yeah, you, you sort of, um, that's what I, I got very excited. That, um, and the guy who, you know, used to put those parties on had a, a collection, a guy called Chris, um, basically like my uncle, um, he, you know, he had a collection of like thousands of movies. And so he, you know, with, with the, Parents would have these parties and us kids would sit in there watching Blade Runner and Apocalypse Now and Mad Max 1 and 2 and, you know, that's when sort of the excitement for making, for watching films and um, just being inundated with cinema sort of started for me and then, you know, you get your hands on a high eight camera and you start making little, you know, movies with your brothers in the backyard and that's that's where it starts, you know. It leads to, leads to harder stuff. How do you think that's changed over the years? Like the accessibility and the... the the manner for kids I've obviously got mobile phones and stuff. So, you know, the, the manner of making films has changed, but do you feel that there might still be that drive for kids who have grown up watching films? It just might be a different type of film that they're making, I guess. I think it's the same thing of like, even just the last generation to my generation, like every generation because technology things seem to get easier and more accessible. The one thing that doesn't get easier is it's once you pick up a camera and start mucking around, you realise very, very quickly it's a lot harder than it looks. Um, you know, it's like somebody looking at a red and going, I could do that, and then buying some paints and going, okay, I'm maybe sub-Kendone at this point. I'm not Rembrandt. <laughs> it's going to take a long time, you know, and it does. It takes decades, and it, it, you know, to even make something halfway good, let alone something great. Um, um, but... The, the thing that used to kill me was, you know, I mean, I'd get a high-end camera, but it didn't look like film and it killed me. Like, it didn't look like Apocalypse Now. It didn't look like Goodfellas, you know. Like, it, it just looked like the shitty video, you know, thing. It, it looked horrible. Um, but that's all we could get our hands on. Um, 
And also you shoot and you have to edit in camera. So I learned to edit in camera. I'd go, okay, you're going to do this. And you could only do one take because you can't do multiple takes and then edit it. So we'd do, we'd do this film, uh, these little mini films and we'd have to cut in camera and plan as we went. And then if you didn't get the take right, you'd rewind and do it again. So in between every edit with this, with this horrible video kind of distortion. Um, but, you know, now like if, you know, a 13-year-old who wants to make a movie can get the latest iPhone and they're shooting stuff that looks like, you know, the latest Michael Bay film. Um, they can edit on their phones. Um, you know, they can get, you know, like a version of After Effects and, and, and learn how to do visual effects pretty swiftly. Um, you know, there's online tutorials to show you how to have a meteor hit Earth. You know, I mean, that used to cost like hundreds of thousands of dollars for one shot and now you can do it, you know, in... in pretty much one day you can work out how to do that. So the accessibility and the ability to make amazing content um, is, you know, so much easier than it was when I was a kid. Um, but it still doesn't mean that you can just instantly make good stuff because so much of it is about, about imagination and storytelling and having those original ideas, you know, sort of having the craft behind you to make something that, is, you know, feels visually dynamic, you know. Um, yeah. So when you when you're building something like Wormwood, do you start off with a bible? Do you start off with an idea of or, or storyboards and then work towards the script, or does the script come first and then you work towards the, the bible and the storyboards? Well, the original Wormwood started with just an idea where we just we like. We got sick of waiting for George Miller to make another Mad Max. It had been like almost <laughs> yeah. a couple of decades, you know. Ironically, yeah. it took us so long to make Wormwood that he, you know, made and released Fury Road by the time, you know, we were sort of releasing ours. But, yeah, we just wanted to see Mad Max. And, like, we're like, okay, well, we want to do something where we can make a Mad Max vehicle, dress people up in leathers and, you know, have sawn-off shotguns and people running around, you know, in, um, uh, in like, a post-apocalyptic world. But... We knew that we didn't have a lot of money and we knew that if you don't have a lot of money, you're not going to make a film that's going to look very good. Um, so the best thing to do is do a horror film. And, you know, you, you look at cinema history and the, the three things that pop up are George A. Romero, uh, Peter Jackson and Sam Raimi. So Evil Dead 1, um, Bad Taste and, um, you know, sort of the original um, Night of the Living Dead are, like, just templates for, like, mm. how you make a low-budget, awesome um, horror film that can also be distributed. I mean, Bad Taste went to Cannes. Evil Dead made a lot of money on its theatrical release and, like, you know, um, I think um, at the time Night of the Living Dead was one of the most financially successful films of that time, you know, in terms of budget to, um, you know, making ratio. And so we, we, we thought, okay, well, let's take Mad Max and chuck a bunch of zombies in there, um, you know, let's try and make it look like Evil Dead as much as we can, you know, visually dynamic to make up for the um, low budgetness of it. Um, and I, I think we're going to be okay. So we decided to do a proof of concept, just a scene. Um, and we've done that, three, you know, for a bunch of times now. We're, I don't know why, but for some reason I, I like to make a proof of concept that doesn't have any dialogue. I'm just like, look, let's just see if this works visually as a world and as a concept, um, you know, without any kind of, you know, storytelling devices like exposition or any of that stuff. Let's just see if it works. So, um, you know, we plotted out this idea for a scene um, and I storyboarded it very tightly and we put in, I think, about $7,000 of our own money. We bought a vehicle 
um, you know, uh, built that into a prop Mad Max type vehicle, you know, sourced the costumes ourselves by asking people to give us their old leather biker armour and then putting uh, a friend of our American football and he gave us some old football uh, shoulder pads and, you know, we've got the hockey mask and, you know, just sort of, um, you know, made everything ourselves. Um, we sourced makeup artists by sending them the storyboards and the concept and, and a couple of short films that we'd made just to let them know that we knew what we were doing. And, um, you know, we sort of got them to come on board. Basically, everybody just worked for free because they thought the concept was cool. Most of the people on crew were just friends of ours. We shot that. Um, I edited that together and did all the little visual effects myself and we just put it up online to see what would happen. And, you know, within a couple of weeks it had, had you know, 100,000 views, which which doesn't sound like a lot now, but back then it was huge. Like, oh, yeah. Know, it was like yeah. 2009 or whatever. So, so within a week, you know, we got, it became viral. I didn't know an older viral video was back then, but, you know, that's when we knew we had a film and then we just, we just moved forward, Andrew, <laughs> until we finished and it took three and a half years um, because we funded it ourselves and then when we finished it, it did do a little bit, you know, it, I think people missed those kind of Sam Raimi, Peter Jackson early type films. I think I think people always want that. that people love handmade stuff, you know. If you're yeah. good at what you do and you make it handmade and there's like an excitement and an energy on it, I think people just get, you know, sort of caught up cinematically in your excitement to do it. And, and it did a little bit of similar kind of business to some of those films. Um, you know, I guess what the industry would call a success. Um, and, um, you know, it was, it was a bit culty and, um, you know, that, then it was it did what I was hoping it was going to do, which was to launch me into a, quote, career, unquote. Yeah. And here yeah. we are, seven years later, still, <laughs> still doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty exciting. I mean, I remember watching the first one when it first came out and just feeling like the same kind of energy that I felt after watching the Spearigs uh, Undead. Right. And... And I saw that in a tiny little cinema and just felt that that same energy that I had, as you're saying, like watching Brain Dead or Bad Taste as a kid and just being like, oh, this is this is something that, like, I know I don't have the creative uh, energy to be able to do it or, or the imagination, but there's something about going, somebody did this with not a lot of money, but a lot of uh, gum and a lot of power and a lot of imagination and look at what they've created it is a really exciting entertaining film that's what i felt when i watched undead that's what i felt when i watched the first wormwood and here with wormwood apocalypse which is just as much fun if not more fun than the first one um it's that that kind of vision is is grown it's exciting and it's it's really exciting to be able to watch you as a filmmaker progress you know, over the years and see how these ideas have, have morphed into new ideas. I mean, I, I just love the opening of this film a lot. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> Ironically, the opening for this film was written 10 years ago to, to be the opening of Wormwood Road of the Dead. Um, and we looked at it and just went, we don't have the money to do, to do that. <laughs> um, and not only that, um, we sort of, um, we decided in, instead of starting the whole, world building of, of, of it all a, a year into the apocalypse we thought it more interesting to start with a guy's family um on the night of the apocalypse and then work our way towards it so yeah the first the, the, the opening that you that you said that you liked actually was the first thing we wrote you know this idea of this guy alone in the middle of nowhere you know god's lonely man uh, in this middle in, in in the middle of uh this zombie infested 
post-apocalyptic wasteland. You know, it's, so, it's, it's such a mythical image, you know, this guy in the middle of an electrified fenced enclosure in a caravan, you know, with a barbecue that runs on zombie breath, um, you know, getting up and doing his morning routine and exercises and, you know, he's got a zombie chain to a pole that he uses for boxing exercise, you know. I mean, all, all this stuff is just such classic apocalyptic um, stuff, you know. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that was written over 10 years ago. Yeah, wow. And yet it still feels, you know, it's organic. It feels brand new and, and feels part of the whole uh, the whole genesis of everything. How, how do you and Tristan come up with the ideas for this? Is it a lot of late night drinking and sitting around and brainstorming? Or is there, a, a, you know, messaging and going, oh, geez, I just thought of this. Why don't we do this? Kind of all of the above. Um, but also, you know, we get together, we just do the work. You know, we just set aside a couple of days here and a couple of days there and just work the boards. You know, we'll get like a big whiteboard and just beat out all the scenes. Um, so the way we write is we, we try and come up with every single story they you know, as detailed as we can, um, you know, very rough ideas of intention for dialogue. We don't actually write any dialogue down. We just do the story beats. We do like a, um, you know, a reasonably detailed beat by beat uh, story treatment together. And then I'll go off and I'll write the draft. Um, I, I can't write with somebody sitting behind me. So like, I, I just can't do that. So I tend to, I'll write the script out and then, once I start writing scripts, then we sort of turn, it turns a little bit more into your more classic director, writer, creative producer team thing. So it gives me notes and we discuss scenes and, you know, he says, oh, I don't like this. And why does he say that? And then we, you know, kind of work through it like that. Um, but yeah, we, we work pretty closely in terms of structure and story and like the world really comes from 50-50, you know, his head, my head. It's such a fully realized world as well. Like it feels, it feels like, you know, outside of the frames of the film, it's going to continue moving. It's going to continue operating. And it's got this whole, you know, the way you layer upon the world and, and build it up is, is really exciting and interesting, especially with the, the different mad scientists and what they're all doing there. You really lean on the, the different genre tropes, which I, I, I found quite exciting. Um, were there certain pinpoints you, you just had to get to in this particular entry? Um, we had such a good run of it on the first film because we financed it ourselves. We had 100% creative control and, and it just felt right. Um, we just made exactly kind of the film that we wanted to make and it was successful. People seemed to like it, even critically, like it did pretty well. And the most important thing on this one was we just had to have that same experience and it's really hard to get the same experience once you enter the industry. Once you enter the industry, you get into this thing of, I mean, it's mostly money-based where people are like, well, we're going to give you a lot of money and you have to make that money back and you're good artists, but we don't really trust you to get the money back. It's not that you're not great, it's that we think our ideas are more bankable. And so, look, let's go 40% your ideas and 55% my ideas and then the other 5%, I mean, who knows, um, you know, will be dictated by actors or demands of agents or whatever crap. You know, you just get caught up in the crap of, oh, that's why it's hard to make a film in the industry, you know. And so we just didn't want to get caught up in the crap of all of that. Um, and so it was very important on this one to make sure that we found a collaborator that would kind of, like have the creative respect to go, okay, you guys know what you're doing. I'm just going to back you up and I'm, I'm going to produce this, but I'm not going to try and write it with you. Um, and one of the ways that we had to 
one of the only ways that we could do that was to have a really low budget. So we made this for the, the minimum, below the minimum of, of what we could make it for so that we could kind of budget-wise earn the right to have creative decisions just like dictated by Tristan and May like we did on the first film. Um, and so when we wrote it, we just didn't give a shit. We just went, let's make something that we just like. And so if every scene makes us happy creatively, then we're going to do it. And, you know, um, we just wrote, you know, th- this one needed to be Mad Max 2. And if the first one's Mad Max 1, this is Road Warrior, if you know what I mean. And let's just make a rip-roaring action film where, you know, we just put in everything that we want to see and set the budget low enough that we get away with just doing whatever the hell we want. And then we might make something original again, like we did with the first one. So, yeah. How, how hard is it to make something original in, in a zombies genre? I mean, like, you know, the old thing is, oh, I mean, people are bored of, I remember talking to a filmmaker, um, oh, years ago now, um, very talented, super smart guy. And like, it was embarrassing. I was like, oh, what do you like? What do you hate nowadays? And he's, he's like, I hate anything zombie now. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, you're talking to a zombie filmmaker. Um, but he was kind of justifying it, just going, look, this, I mean, it's people just get bored of it, you know. But, like, people aren't bored of the zombies. They're just bored of, you know, the same old thing. Um, I'm, I'm getting a little bit of, like, um, superhero fatigue at this point. And, and it's not that I don't like superheroes. I adore superheroes. I grew up on comics. I'm just sick of the fact that most of them are the same. They just start to template them and you don't feel like being fresh. Um, and, um, like, uh, it, as long as you're coming at a very tried and true off-repeated genre, as long as you're coming at that genre with fresh ideas and, like, new energy, um, it doesn't matter that people have seen it a million. There's nothing new under the sun. It's just the energy behind it, you know? Um, so we're not really doing anything that hasn't been done before, um, you know, because a lot of our style and stuff really does come from Sam Raimi, Peter Jackson and um, Ramiro. Um, it's just that we're bringing a freshness to it and, like, uh, an, an originality to, to the same old thing. So, you know, the key to the success of something is that there has to be a familiarity and a newness at the same time. And if you can bring those two things to a story, it's probably going to be successful. So the familiarity means that people settle back and go, oh, I know what this is going to be. But the freshness is the twist that you give them um, in terms of concept or even in terms of scene construction or, you know, you kill a character that otherwise you'd have to let live. You know, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, all that stuff just comes down to, you know, sort of good writing, but also taking risks. And that's why it's hard in the industry because a lot of producers and financiers don't want you to take risks. They're like, why are you killing the dog? Don't kill the dog. It's a rule. You can't kill the dog. It's like, who says you can't kill the dog? Um, You know, I I don't agree with that. You know, maybe you can't kill the dog in a Tom Hanks movie, but, you know, like this is a low-budget film. You know, the risk is low. Let's kill the dog. And, um, you know, at least people might not like it, but they'll talk about it, you know? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean... It's interesting, like, talking about uh, Tom Hanks's films with dogs being killed. Like, Turner and Hooch is memorable because the dog died. <laughs> you know? He got me there, Andrew. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. I didn't... <laughs> That's, like, the worst example I could have given. But it fits the bill because most other Tom Hanks films, they'd be like, no, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. But, it, but when they do take that challenge, they, when they do take that risk it sticks in your mind. You remember it years later. 
And oh, I should have. I so should have used Charles Grodin as the example. But, you know, <laughs> but, but Beethoven doesn't die, does he? Of course, Turner um, and Hooch dies. Yeah, yeah, that was horrible. I'm yeah. still scarred by. I'm still scarred by that. Maybe you yeah. shouldn't do it. Those early '90s films, they they were it was a massacre for animals. You know, all dogs go to heaven and stuff like and that. And kids, just... man, do you remember seeing that film My Girl with like Macaulay Culkin and he dies? Like, you're like, what? <laughs> I, can't, I thought this was going to be like a happy '60s film about childhood and happiness, oh, yeah. butterflies, and then Culkin's dead halfway through. You're like, what? <laughs> Where'd that come from? Anyway, yeah, I mean, they really they really put you through the ringing up. But yeah. <laughs> they did, you know, and our, our childhood films were like Stand By Me about some kids trekking to find a dead body. Like, you don't get that stuff anymore, you know? It's a pity. No. I mean, it's the, the kids' films that are being made nowadays are moderately entertaining, but it's, you know, they don't stick in the same way. I mean, I think of something like Coraline, which is not a traditional kids' film, but that terrifies you. You know, that's, that's, a, hor- that's a horror film, yeah. It's a horror film through and through, yeah. yeah. But it, it is so important to find those acts that stick in your mind and those elements of a script that really stick in your mind and make you go 10 years down the line, oh, do you remember this? Do you remember that? And, you know, for me, specifically talking about the Wormwood films, there are there are certain aspects of it that just stick in your mind where you kind of, whenever you come to a new zombie film, you're like, yeah, it's not doing this like they did that. Like Brooke, who is a great character, wonderful character, has so much inventiveness to this particular character that, um, and the way that Bianca just, you know, exhibits her on screen, it was I, full I energy. Had a, I had a wonderful compliment from um, a, a, a film festival critic, a um, friend of mine, a guy called Christian Bird, just watched this film, um, and he, he actually gave me this wonderful critique of it um, and, and he said, um, in the first five minutes we do this opening where you see Brooke and Barry and it's like a year in the apocalypse and they've, they've changed a bit and the scene is really full on. And he said, in that scene I sat up and I went, oh, oh Kia's not messing around here. He's like, this is not what I expected. He's not even sure it's what he wanted. And he's going, that's what I liked about it. It's like, I didn't, I didn't expect this. And then you cut to this other guy and it's like, who's this? And it's like, I did not expect this at all from the Wormwood sequel. And, um, you know, and then he said he stopped it. And then he, and he hasn't done this with too many other films. He stopped it and immediately watched it again. He goes, okay, I did not expect that. Like, I need to see that again immediately, you know? And that's the biggest, I mean, that never happens. You know, who watches a film and then watches it again? But And, and I, I took that as the greatest compliment because we're not sitting here kowtowing to, you know, what we think the fans want or anything. We're just going what we want. And we're assuming that, you know, if it's what we want, it must be what the fans wanted because that's all we did with the first film. It's just like whatever we wanted to do, we just did it. Um, and, you know, I think Aronofsky years ago did it where he said that. He just goes, I make films for me, and I assume that there's going to be an audience for that because, hey, we all grew up with the same films and, you know, cultural references. Like, there, there must be an audience for, for what I like, and I think that goes back to the idea of the singular vision. I don't like to say auteur because I think it sort of shits on crew in the cast and all the other people who help on a film. Like, I don't believe in auteurism, but I do believe in the idea of a singular vision. And, um, you know, you look at Aronofsky and David Lynch and Martin Scorsese and all the greats, they all had a singular vision um, and they all, you know, fought the good fight um, in that 
they fought for their singular vision and you feel that in their films and that's why when a new film of theirs comes out it's a special occasion because you know you may not get what you want but you're going to sit up and take notice because you know um they're not messing around you know? yeah yeah definitely is that is that even harder in today's landscape in Australian films? Because from what I've seen, you know, as you were talking about before, it comes down to money. There's money involved, then it makes it harder to have that singular vision. But there is a freedom to being a low-budget production, a freedom to being uh, independent. And, you know, there are different scales of independent for sure uh, and, you know, different uh, views of what being independent is you know, of course, some people would say that Nitram is independent, even though it's funded by uh, Madman and Stan, but it didn't have government funding or it didn't have um, Screen Australia funding. I don't think anybody wanted to fund that one, you know. No, at all. Martin Bryant? Uh, no. Yeah, no, <laughs> thank you. To... Yeah. Oh, call it Nitram. Yeah, no, good, good. Don't, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't. I'm really looking forward to that. I'm such a big fan of um, Justin Kurtzell. Sean Grant is a genius writer. Um, I'm sure I'm sure it's going to be an amazing film. But, yeah, that yeah. would have been very hard to get funded. Yeah, try and see it in the cinema if you can. I saw it earlier in the year and it's just... Uh, it's been hard to shake. Um, but oh, but, oh man, I'm, I'm still trying to shake Snowtown. Like, I mean, that film got under my skin in a way that no other film has, except for maybe Martyrs. Yeah, Martyrs is, oof, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I've got post-traumatic stress syndrome from Martyrs. You know, it's like, watch Martyrs, it's like going to war for a couple of days. Right? Yeah, yeah. I was listening to a podcast that was talking about Martyrs the other day, and I had to stop listening to it just because... Um, I was driving and I was like, I can't do, I can't listen to this while I'm driving because it's bringing back too many memories of, of the film. <laughs> yeah. Flashbacks. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, how, how hard is it for, to have that singular vision in Australian film? It's really hard, but I'm sort of very slowly learning that it's about writing. Um, I mean, I write my own stuff, so of course it is, um, but it's about the script, you know, um, like with Wormwood, we were in a very good position. We were lucky that, you know, we connected with um, Blake who had a really solid financial plan for getting this up. And because we had success with the first one, we were able to get away with the idea that we had final cut and like all the creative decisions just like laid out for us. But that's very rare. Um, most of the time you do need to write towards the idea somebody's going to give you a couple of million dollars for your project. And it doesn't matter how talented or awesome you are. Most of the time that's not going to happen unless somebody has um, confidence in your project's ability to make something financial happen in a marketplace, you know. So you can't just go in with these awesome ideas, you know. You do have to be able to justify it, um, you know. It has to feel market ready, you know. So... um, Film doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, if, if you want your singular vision to be purely, you know, altruistic, um, be a painter or a novelist. Um, film is collaborative and it costs a lot of money. So there has to be a business aspect to, to what you're doing. And so that's the struggle. That is the struggle of being a filmmaker, trying desperately to make Taxi Driver but realising there's not a market for it. So you have to create that market through being incredibly clever and talented and a good writer and um, hopefully successful because, you know, at the end of the day, if your films don't make money, they're not going to keep financing you and you'll end up making, you know, stop-motion animation in your cupboard. 
That's a great Keir Roche Turner talking about his new film, Wormwood Apocalypse, which launches very, very soon. And if you're in Sydney, well, you'll be able to check it out this coming weekend, November 6th. You've got to be quick, though, because tickets are selling out quickly. And if you're in Melbourne, make sure to head over to Monster Fest and pick up your tickets soon as well. I'll stick links for both of those in the show notes. And if you're in Brisbane, hopefully you enjoyed the screening that recently screened there. I certainly enjoyed watching it. It was a lot of fun. So this was part one. Part two will be dropping in a couple of days' time. And part two, I really enjoy where the discussion goes from there. I ask Kia about what it means to be creative and how he knows that he's good at what he can do. That's a bit of a difficult question to answer. And I'm sure that if you're creative and you're somebody who's able to do creative things, that you've never actually thought about that or, or tried to ask yourself that question because it is a bit of a daunting question. And yet I put that to Kier and he gives me a really great answer. I really enjoy where that part of the discussion goes and where we go and explore how drone work works as well. Because I think the drone work in Wormwood Apocalypse is pretty darn impressive. But you're going to have to keep an eye on the RSS feed or uh, keep an eye on the website, thecurb.com.au, for when that drops, which will be on Wednesday. And check out all the other interviews that are going on this week that are celebrating the Sydney Film Festival it launches this weekend a lot of great films a lot of great Australian films and keep in mind even if you're not in Sydney there is an actual online component which is coming up very soon as well so you can certainly celebrate this festival from afar just like we did earlier in the year with the Melbourne International Film Festival I love when that happens it makes me very happy from as a as a perth person being able to celebrate uh these great festivals from afar enough of me folks head over to patreon.com forward slash the curb au support this website as little as a dollar a month it helps keep me being able to do these particular interviews with great filmmakers like here Give us a like on social media. And hey, if you enjoyed this episode and this interview, go over to iTunes or, or whatever it's called now, Apple Podcasts, I believe it is, and give us a rating and a review as well. It just helps people know that this podcast exists. All right, guys, I'll chat to you in a couple of days. Take care of each other. I'll see you on the next one. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to oscastnetwork.com for details.